cultural heritage, it's, it's a familiar concept. And the protection of those heritage values in places and, and the world of things, well, they, it, that's something that has a pretty broad level of understanding. Now, that's not to say there's not often pretty flawed execution of those protections. Uh, and, and a very variable approach when it comes to protecting the, the significant places of both colonial and Indigenous cultures, some, some unevenness in that. So it's a tricky enough area. Even trickier, though, is this concept, uh, protecting species of cultural value to Indigenous Australian peoples. But this is a moment uh, to, to have a conversation about that because the Australian government is currently considering updating uh, this country's biodiversity laws. And there's an opportunity there. And the protection of culturally significant species is, is becoming a serious talking point. Dr Jack Pascoe is a UN man, is, is conservation and research manager at the Conservation Ecology Centre and research fellow at the University of Melbourne. He joins us now. Jack, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. You're, you're out in the, the outdoors as we speak, overlooking a bit of a, a Bass Strait, a, a place in which we may find characters, species of, of significant cultural value. Out overlooking part of the Bass Strait this morning, actually, we, we held a, a, a whale ceremony here with, with a few different mobs uh, early this year, and there were um, whales to be seen then. So it absolutely holds um, species of, of significance, this little bit of ocean. Perhaps let's begin with a bit of story there. I mean, tell us about the humpback whale and its significance for the the UN people of, of the Lower East Coast of this country. Yeah, well, it, look, the, the humpback whale is significant to most coastal mobs, both up and down the east and west west coast of Australia. So obviously the, the humpback whale um, has a migratory path um, that we they travel up. Uh, to the warmer waters of, of Australia to um, look after little ones um, in, in our winter and then travel back to Antarctica to feed um, over our summer. And, you know, they hold high um, cultural significance to mobs right up and down both coasts. Um, the the Ewan have a, a special yarn, and, and a lot of these stories are, are quite similar for mobs, but the, the Ewan story is that... Uh, Gurul the whale helped lead uh, the people out of trouble when sea level rose, and it was part of a an agreement that that Gurul had with with elders. Um, Gurul had originally been a a land based um, entity or, or being, and had um, wanted to live in Gadu the ocean. And um, the elders conferred and decided that Gurul could live in the ocean, but with the the responsibility to hold the law of the ocean and return that from time to time to the people. Um, and this was agreed. And as sea level rose, and we, we know um, this is this story sort of links to sea level rise when when Tasmania was was cut off from the rest of the mainland, mm. uh, the people were in great confusion because their their country had been flooded. And uh, Gurul came to the people and and made a path for for people to follow by blowing bubbles, and and the people followed uh, Gurul north to. To country and so um, therefore holding their their law and honouring the the promise they made to the elders. So that, that that's our, our our story of Gurul. And Gurul, the the humpback. I mean, it's a, it's a very good example of of what we're talking about here because the humpback was a a, a species in in great danger, uh, a, a species that had been assaulted by the arrivals in these waters and, and killed in great number, uh, but then was protected 
but not protected because of that cultural significance, protected because it was a, a species in, in some uncertainty. I think what you're arguing for is an extension of that idea. The, 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 why do we protect species? Well, the danger, endangeredness is one reason, but cultural significance is another. That's right. So we, we, we tend to look after or provide special care to species based on the likelihood of them falling off the cliff. So, you know, the IUCN, for instance, wants uh, species to, you know, halve their population size over a number of generations, you know, two or three generations. Now, I guess our argument would be that that would be a, a failure of, of cultural obligation to care in a reciprocal manner with that species um, for us to have to get to that point. And so we'd be we'd like to be able to extend that care to these species and entities of of significance. We use the term entities because it's not only species. Sometimes mm. uh, a place, a part of sea country or or country, could have its own significance itself. And so they need to have that care extended as well. Those places. So this is a real conservation paradigm when we we afford species special protections, but it, it doesn't take into account things that might be protections in a, in a cultural sense. So there could be impacts which aren't a, like a population conservation issue, but they are culturally significant. For instance, the ability of Gurul to be able to follow that ancient song line that he follows every year up and down, interference to that route or anything that is a danger to the animals following that route is a cultural significance, whether or not it's a, an issue with threatened species management. How then, and, and, and we have this conversation, as, as I mentioned, and at, at a moment when the country is looking at, at biodiversity laws quite specifically, how, how does something that is so broad and expansive, how, how can that be captured in something as blunt as legislation? Well, it, it's an excellent question. And, you know, I guess we've got an opportunity with two things happening at the moment. So there's the review of the EPBC or the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. Uh, or the, the reform of, and it, it's a piece of legislation which is out of date and requires reform. Mm. Um, and, and also, there's um, this review of the, you know, the cultural federal cultural heritage um, act. So we think there is a way that those two pieces of legislation can be reformed in tandem, whereby both, you know, the, the cultural significance of these of these species and places can be protected. We think something like a listing mechanism where groups, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups can dedicate places and, and species of significance to them and uh, allow them to have a more active role in the in the protection and uh, not just protection, but the uh, how we care for those for those species and places. Um, I think this is the real opportunity now to allow that to happen. And it's a generational opportunity. And, and caring for those entities and, and species, affording that care before they, as you say, are about to drop off the cliff. I mean, that, that's the important thing here. It's, it's offering that protection even when species are in rude health. That's right. That's right. And, you know, you could look at the, the trajectory of the, the humpback whale and say, well, why does it need that? You know, there are 25,000 of them increasing towards what is probably a, a holding capacity of 35,000 in the east and west coast populations. But we know that, you know, humpback whales will face, you know, considerable threats with, with climate change. There are impacts through shipping, seismic blasting. You know, th there are significant challenges to, to these populations and we want to be able to address them. 
But the other thing to look at is the way that the conservation world operates and the, the limited resource base that we as a, a society actually put towards caring for country. The list of threatened species grows ever longer. And I think we're naive to think that we can just continually grow this list of threatened species because of all the threatening processes happening and still manage to protect them from going extinct. We actually need to start addressing things far earlier in the process um, while they are in root health and while they're resilient to these changes. And there are, I mean, it, it, it's so uneven in its application too. I mean, it's a framework which tends to tends to favour species of, of conspicuousness or charisma, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, often at the expense yeah. of, of many, many others. Look, uh, Gumboa, the koala, certainly, you know, makes headlines. Does very well. And, <laughs> and, you know, yes, we need to take advantage and use it as a flagship for conservation. But, you know, there are so many species that are so important to mobs, to us, to the functioning of our ecosystems, whether we look at it, you know, from a point of ecosystem services and, and what we get out of it, which I prefer not to be the argument or the case, but, you know, we're at a point where you know ecosystems are collapsing around the continent and we genuinely will have that on top of climate change and, and you know things like pollination implication will be an issue but i'd also we need to be having this conversation about what our responsibility is to the health of this continent um, as opposed to just what we can get from it. I think this is where mm. we've gotten ourselves into so much trouble. It's one of the risks to us, not as what is our responsibility to country and that reciprocal care that the first peoples of this continent founded our cultures on. And it's another of those instances, I think, where, where colonial culture and, and, and first peoples cultures collide when the, the standout lesson is to take a, a holistic view, is to consider the the entirety that's involved in this. That, absolutely. And, that, you know, that, that's part of the issue that I take probably with, with just this entire focus on statutory obligations to ensure things don't go extinct. That's not holistic enough. But the, the cultures were entirely different, as you say, and why they, why they clashed. And there, there are so many stories about mobs who first witnessed colonisers coming and their first... Mm. Their first thought was, all right, well, we need to initiate these new newcomers into the law of the land. That's our first, that's our responsibility to ensure that they're not breaking the law of the land. That was the first reaction of, of many Indigenous mobs around the continent. Now, as we can see, that the, the laws of the land weren't taken up readily by European colonisers, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but had it been, then I think we'd be looking at a very different place. So... You know, the vast majority of those cultures, you know, the first concept is to care for country. You know, some are explicit to care for country like she's your flesh and blood mother. Now, if we could start to take on some of those principles, maybe the continent would be in, in rude health, as you say, as opposed to the, the indicators that we're seeing through things like the state of environment, um, which just show signs of imminent ecological collapse. Are there legislative frameworks internationally that might might help guide us through this? Look, there there are some. Um, I think probably we're not seeing many that work in, in terms of culturally significant entities. There, there are some legislative frameworks which require um, indigenous knowledge um, to be incorporated more into things like recovery plans. I think we're looking for something 
a bit beyond that, where the where the principles of why species are being protected in the first place is a little bit different, you know, so that a species can be protected simply for its cultural value or its importance to cultural practice or its relationship with people as opposed to simply its conservation status. So I think we're, we're arguing for something uh, slightly different to what we've seen elsewhere. Jack, thank you. I mean, uh, one of those important conversations and the, the outcome of which could be to extraordinary benefit to all people, species and things in this place, um, that, that holistic approach that we talk about. Yeah, look, I, I, hope, I hope we can see some really positive change and at the very least have some conversations around what's important and what is of value. Jack, thank you. Uh, Dr Jack Pascoe, uh, you and man, Conservation and Research Manager at the Conservation Ecology Centre, uh, Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne, coming to us from Clifftop Above Bass Strait. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.